Please would you stand as we uh, read God's word. The text for the sermon this Sunday is Psalm 73. Psalm 73. So hear now uh, God's word. Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Truly, in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I sought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold on to my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your word comes to us from heaven today and that uh, we see in this psalm a message about our lives and the, um, your son who you sent to die for us. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you will apply this word in encouragement, in edification for the body, that we may glorify and tell of your great works. And so be with us, aid us this morning hour to hear and to receive your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the subject of our psalm today is, is doubts. And doubts is something that anybody who lives the life of faith will at one time or another experience. So God has given us this word today to meet us in our doubts. Uh, there's many reasons where, why we may have doubts. 
Uh, it takes not too much of a quick look at the news for us to be seriously frustrated that wicked people seem to prosper, that evil employers take advantage of helpless workers, that uh, dictators savage a country and enrich themselves while, while everyone else perishes in starvation. These people appear to live their lives with no consequences, that they don't seem to get what they deserve. And this can cause us great pain. The reason being, we read in the Proverbs how life is supposed to work, right? The righteous will live the good life, and the wicked will fall down to ruin, right? Isn't that what it teaches us? It's called the retribution principle, that each will get what is owed to him. For example, this proverb, um, the crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. Such, of the ways of, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the lives of its possessors. But again, that doesn't always seem to be the case. So sometimes when life doesn't appear to work this way, our faith may be stretched. And it may be stretched so severely that it's within moments of breaking. Now you may have experienced a moment like this before, or moments, perhaps a, a tragedy, a great suffering, an injustice, a mistreatment, a loss that's unjust. But even if you haven't, you are likely to face challenges to your faith in, in the rest of your lives. And God knows this. So what's amazing is that the Holy Spirit has ensured that the struggle of the psalmist is recorded for us. That in Scripture, we can look to a place that prepares us for how to respond when life doesn't seem to work the way that it should. So as we look at this psalm today, we'll see God's instruction by way of example of how to respond to doubts. And that's by looking to the age to come, the days in which our Savior, Jesus Christ, will bless the righteous and judge the wicked. In other words, the psalm teaches us that our response to doubts must be to trust in the Lord's promises and to use his means of grace throughout our pilgrim journey of faith. Well, you know, uh, you're not often finding three-point sermons uh, from me, but today we have a three-point sermon because this text in Hebrew has three markers for us, about three big divisions. And you would have heard maybe as I was reading the scripture that uh, there may have been a little bit of a mismatch because I was saying truly uh, three times. And that divides our text up into these three neat segments. So we're going to follow that as an outline. And as a heads up, these three main segments, the first you could summarize is even the faithful have doubts. Even the faithful have doubts. That is, we may have a crisis of faith. Secondly, what to do when you doubt? How do we respond to doubts? This is the turning point for the psalmist in the text. And finally, we're going to see God's faithfulness to doubters. 
And that is the resolution of the psalmist's crisis of faith. So first, even the faithful may have doubts. Well, this psalm is ascribed in the superscription, which is kind of like a title for the psalm, to a man named Asaph. Now, we don't know very much about him at all. The verb Asaph means to gather. We do know that he was involved in the liturgy, like the, the church service of the, of the temple. But Asaph is now going to tell us about a struggle of faith that he had. He's wondering why, like us, the retribution principle isn't working. But he begins first in verse 1 by saying, this is a reminder, basic reminder of how the Old Testament speaks of God, that he is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And Asaph is saying, I believe this. But then he goes on to say, but there was a moment when I nearly didn't. That's his crisis of faith. So he's going to spend the rest of the psalm telling us how did he get to that conviction that truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, look at verse 2. It says that for him, in contrast, he's setting himself in contrast to Israel as pure in heart almost. He says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means he nearly abandoned his faith. He nearly rejected his faith. Why? Well, he gives the reason, verse 3. Because he was jealous or envious of people who seemed to be successful even though they were wicked. All right, so he looks upon these people and wishes... That life went for him like life seems to go for the wicked who seem to be prospering. Now, this is quite shocking. This man who's confessing truly God is good to Israel says that I nearly lost my faith. Or what do you get envious of that might motivate you to be jealous of others? Is it that you know somebody who's a terrible person but seems to have an amazing car or a massive house or is a, is a bully at school and has tons of friends? Is it somebody who's really wicked and evil at heart and terrible to people around them but seems to have a successful marriage? There's any number of things where we look at wicked people and think, how? Have they got that when I belong to God? I'm one of his faithful, righteous ones. Why has my life not gone that way? Well, what does Asaph look at and what is he jealous about? Well, he summarizes it with this, uh, this statement. He says, they have no pains until death. Nothing's difficult for them. It says their bodies are fat and sleek, meaning they have lots of food. There's a lot of feasting in the house of the wicked. They're well fed. They're not in trouble. They're out of harm's way. Most of the other people seem to be having difficulties in life, afflictions. But the wicked seem to cruise through without struggle. Well, what's the result of this easy life? Well, they have pride. 
They wear it like a necklace. They're not, they're not ashamed of their arrogance. In fact, they dress up in it. It gleams that people can see it from afar. And violence covers them as a garment. They, are, they think that dressing up means showing and displaying their mistreatment of others. In fact, they are so uh, rich and full of their lies and delusions, it says their eyes are bulging out. Like the internal fatness is pushing their eyes out of them. They are, uh, as you've seen in, um, in some movies, the display of the, of, the, of the kings who are feasting all the time and their eyes like, look like they're about to burst out of their skulls. That's what the wicked are like. They're scoffers and mockers who speak with ill intent and they threaten oppression. If they don't get their way, they will swear that they will put you under the bus. These are the people being described in Proverbs 1 as the wicked, right? The scoffers. Do not sit in the seat of scoffers. They set their mouths against the heavens. They blaspheme. And finally, we get this expression here, their tongue struts through the earth. It's a little bit difficult to interpret. It's an expression that comes from a neighboring uh, nation called um, Ugarit. And um, this, essentially, the idea behind this is because of their arrogance, they just, they're the big talkers, right? The movers and shakers strutting throughout the earth. They appear to rule the roost. So what's the result of that? Well, God's people then seem to turn back to these people away from God and say, there's no fault in them because what they're doing is working. That's the temptation. When we see the wicked getting what the righteous should get and the righteous getting what the wicked should get, the response might be, well, maybe they're on the right track. Maybe I'm on the wrong team. Maybe I need to change allegiances. That's the risk. God's people are tempted, are tempted to approve of wickedness. And that should be a warning to us because it's saying that people's wealth and success and power is alluring, even for believers, potentially. That we can be led astray and tempted by the the power, the ease of living of the wicked. And verse 11 tells us, why do they act this way? Well, they think that they can get away with it. They're, they're atheists. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Is there a God who's going to judge me? Rhetorically, the answer to their question is no. They think that they are exempt from accountability. They act as if there's no comeuppance, there's no consequence for their action. As long as they can maintain their power and privilege, they can do what they want for the whole of their lives. And so he summarizes then in verse 12, Asaf, to say, Behold, or yes indeed, these are the wicked. What's their life like? Always easy and always increasing in riches. That's a summary of his jealousy of the wicked. They have an easy life. 
Nothing difficult happens to them, and they make tons of money. Well, he could see the life of the wicked and has a, a response. He now reflects on this. And now this moves us to the second part. What do we do when we doubt? What does the turning point look like in a crisis of faith? Well, first he reflects on his situation. And he says, okay, given what I see about the wicked, in vain, truly in vain, I have kept my hands clean, and uh, my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. These are Celtic terms talking about his purity, that he's, he's done his, his washings, and he has even done the inward work of trying to keep his heart pure. But he's like, what's the point of this? Is, what's the point of this church stuff, this religion stuff? Is it worth it? The wicked prosper and I suffer? Why should I carry on with the temple, with God? His doubts are so deep that he's, just, he's wondering, should I just tap out of this life of faith and join the wicked and enjoy their success? He sounds a little bit like the preacher in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 7, he says, In my absurd or topsy-turvy life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evildoing. He says, For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What has my righteousness earned me? What has my faith earned me? Difficulty and calamity. But what happens next is really important. Look at verse 15. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Well, to speak thus is he's saying, if I, if I verbalized these things, if I verbalized my crisis of faith in a public setting, I may have betrayed the generation of your children. He means he's worried about the consequences of just speaking openly about his doubts in a way that accuses God of being unfaithful. He's worried that the children and those who, for that matter, uh, are those who are also young in, in faith or immature in faith, may actually be scandalized, meaning they may fall away from their faith. If he says, the wicked are prospering, the righteous suffer, so this is not worth it. If he'd said that in public, he's worried that his covenant community's faith is going to be harmed. And that's an important lesson for us. We have to, even when we have doubts, we have to be careful how and where we express those doubts. But children, in this, I want to speak to you directly here. When adults let you down, you need to remember that, your, that parents and adults are not the foundation of your hope. Jesus is the foundation of your hope. People can sin and let you down. 
But that should never cause you to lose your faith. Instead, you should look to Jesus, who will never let you down, ever. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't, um, for, uh, doesn't turn back on his promises. He always follows through. So even when people express their doubts and the difficulties of their faith, that shouldn't cause harm to your faith. Instead, you should look to your Savior, Jesus. Remember, this is an early understanding of essentially what Jesus says in Matthew 18. But whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. See, Asaf has an impulse. Yes, I'm wrestling with why the world doesn't look like I think it should look. But I do not want to harm the faith of others. An impulse that is very different, is it not, to a social media world where the second you have a thought, you broadcast it to the planet without care of how it's going to affect other people. It's just self-therapy. I'm going to say what I want and people need to hear it. Well, this is very different. This is not displaying everything we think. Now, this is not to say that you should then not express or deal with doubts. Clearly, Asaf is, is expressing his doubts. But you have a pastor and elders and Christian, mature Christian friends who you can speak to in your difficulties. Not to vent therapeutically on those weaker in faith, but to go to those who are stronger in faith and can, and, and, and can remind you of the truth of the gospel without being damaged themselves. So something to bear in mind about the way that we express our, our doubts. Then Asaf goes on to say, When I sought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Uh, Asaf is right, isn't he? When we try and figure out why things are happening in the world the way they are, in our own strength and in our own wisdom, that's an exhausting process. I'm, I've certainly experienced that myself. We don't have the wisdom to discern why the world works the way it does on our own strength. That's why Asaf says it's a wearisome task. But something changes. Verse 17. Here is our turning point. It was a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Everything changed when Asaf went into the temple. In the temple, God's presence is there intensely. In a way that actually changes his whole perspective and understanding. What this means is, Asaf went to church. He went to the place where the Lord dwells. He went to the place of the proclamation of God's promises. For him in types and shadows. But still the place of the proclamation of God's promises. The place where one can have a taste of the future age to come. His suffering drove him to God and to remember God's promises. 
And that is the nature of what happens on the Lord's Day at church. God's word is being preached and that reorientates us to heaven. Away from having our eyes on the things of this world and the way it works and rather to heaven. Where God is in his sanctuary. And so that means, by way of implication, we need to go to church. We need to gather on the Lord's Day where the weakness of our flesh is overshadowed by the power of God's truth being proclaimed to us week after week. And we don't need it once a year because we don't find weakness once a year. Weakness is our weekly, daily, hourly reality. Every week we need a temple reorientation where the Lord speaks to us and renews our faith and our strength by the power of His Spirit. It will not do then to go to a church where God's word is not preached because God will not be there. There's no use going to a church building where a TED talk is presented to say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do this in your own strength. The only place of any use is the place where the gospel, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ is preached. That is where strength is renewed and, and faith is built. And so that's what you need to do. And that's what you have done. You are in a church that preaches the gospel. And here you will find God's presence, his word being preached, and your soul being nourished. And your heart being reoriented to heaven. So what we need is the gospel, and that's actually what Asaph received in types and shadows, as we said, in the temple. Uh, pictures of what we have in fullness, but truly the substance is there, and that's what Asaph experienced. He went into God's presence, and the result is that he then discerned their end. Ultimately, he understood what's going to happen to the wicked. Asaph stepped into the temple. And he could see past the temporary realities and see into ultimate reality. The temple was his reorientation. So that leads us then to our final, uh, truly, our final section of this text. And that's God's faithfulness to doubters. The resolution of Asaph's crisis of faith. Well, he goes into the temple and he discerns their end. What is the end of the wicked? Well, that's what he goes on to explain. Truly, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. You can see the contrast to the first verse where he said, My feet nearly slipped. I nearly lost my faith. But then he's like, actually, the ones who are ultimately going to slip are not God's people. They're not the righteous but the wicked. God puts them on an icy hill. There's no traction control that can stop that downfall. The, basically, the wicked are going downhill, and they will fall to ruin. In fact, even though for generations, for thousands of years, it's going to seem like the wicked are prospering, ultimately, they will be destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. What are the terrors? The Lord Jesus will return, sound of a trumpet, and administer justice. This is 
a picture in a, in a sense of that the, ultimately the wicked will get what they deserve in the final judgment. It seems like the Lord is asleep at the moment because people are strutting, their tongues are strutting throughout the earth, speaking evil, doing evil, and, and, and prospering. It almost seems like God is sleeping on the job, but he's not. As we said in last week in Psalm 7, he's like a warrior who, when roused to war, will annihilate his foes. And so he says, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as fleeting shadows. There are no opposition. God's not coming to fight a battle that he may or may not win. He's coming to eliminate the wicked. And Asaph says, what's the result now that he looks back? How was he acting towards God? He said, when my soul was embittered, when I was sour in my heart, when I was jealous of the wicked and angry at God, I was like impaled in my innermost being, is what he says. Prickton heart is nowhere near enough, strong, strong enough. It's like a, a pole shoved through him. He says what, the way in which he treats God is that he was stupid and ignorant, uh, it's translated here brutish, but stupid and ignorant. I was like a beast, a wild animal in, in the way that I was, was treating you. And that's a pretty important image to say that he's like a beast because in other parts of the Old Testament, the beast refers to the way of the pagan nations rebelling against God. So he's almost saying like, I'm behaving like the, the pagans to you in my rebellion instead of submitting to you and your providence. But despite Asaph's lack of faith, his doubts, and his rebellion against God, we have an important switch. Nevertheless, I am continually with you and God holds on to his right hand. That's how you should translate that. He holds on to Asaf's right hand. He's not holding his hand in such a way that Asaf can pull his hand out. But God is actually holding on to Asaf's hand. Guiding him with his counsel. Leading him on this pilgrim life which is going to have its difficulties and pains and sorrows and Things being topsy-turvy and absurd when we compare them to the Proverbs. But what happens? In the end, afterwards, after this craziness of life, God is going to receive us into glory or remove us to glorify himself. We will be snatched, taken to be in the new creation out of the judgment, which we will not face, the wicked will face. And so this leads Asaf to, want to utter some of the most beautiful words in the Psalms. Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. How different is that to how the Psalm began? I desire everything the wicked have. And yet now, once he's been in the temple and he's beheld the beauty of the Lord and his promises, he says, what on earth would I desire except for you, O Lord? And he has the Lord because the Lord holds onto his right hand. And yes, his flesh and his heart may fail. He may doubt. 
and he may be at his utter wit's end and without strength. But it doesn't matter. God is his strength. God is his place of protection. In fact, the Hebrew says God is his rock and his portion forever. That means his inheritance. He doesn't have to worry about having the car or the house or whatever it is that the, and the power that the wicked has. He's going to get everything. That's what he sees. And in summary, he can say, yes, those who are far from you will ultimately perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Everyone who betrays you. But for me, again, calling back to verse 2, he said, but as for me, my foot nearly slipped. But now, but as for me, it is good to be a near God. It is, there's two ways, the wicked and the righteous. He says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. Why? Because he has made God his refuge, that he may proclaim God's works. It is good for him to be in the presence of God. Ultimately, what we've seen then is there's been a big move from a place of intense doubts to a full, deep assurance and faith in God's promises. How did that happen? Well, it happened by Asaf learning that, yes, wickedness seems to get the upper hand in this life, but ultimately the Lord will do right and he will protect us and hold on to us until that day. The important thing is to note how Asaph came to that conclusion because he didn't reason himself there in his own strength, but rather he had an experience that reminded him of the future. And that's the case for us too. When we, when we come to church, we experience and taste the powers of the age to come in such a way that our faith is strengthened, our doubts are diminished, and our hope is restored. It's the nature of the Christian life. We, we live with present power because of future realities that break into this age. We live as citizens of two kingdoms. One is fading away and the other is increasing with eternal glory. And it's access to God in his temple that is the engine of that power. Because this age, as it seems, a disenchanted, topsy-turvy world. In contrast, when we attend church, we see the glories and the beauty and the peace of the age to come. That will fill our lives and heaven forever. So what Asaf does in his doubts is precisely what we should do. We should draw near to the Lord in his sanctuary and participate in his means of grace. We are to make him a refuge in an upside-down world until he puts an end to all unrighteousness and all wickedness. And here, in his presence, our doubts do indeed melt away because of the good news of the gospel. Our assurance comes from the very fact that our Savior, Jesus, whose enemies prospered in great measure against him, never doubted, never faltered. Because he had a divine mission to come and suffer and die 
to be the righteous one who suffered the fate of the wicked for his own people. And he ended 